compensation pools are commercially reasonable, but lawyers and compliance officers, otherwise known as lifeguards, must carefully assess the source, pool participants, and the division of each pool. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the anti-kickback statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today's episode is titled Compliance Pools, Stark Law, Lifeguards, Training. And so it is my hope to have a little bit of fun here with respect to compensation pools. I'm recording this on July the 3rd, 2022, and I just came in from a swimming pool, and I was thinking about an episode for today, and I thought, summertime and pools and the Stark Law. And a lot of times those all don't go together. Uh, but I was thinking about compensation pools. And I get a lot of questions regarding compensation pools, the structure, the participants, and the like. And so hopefully I'm going to weave into this episode an analysis of compensation pools, some of the benefits of compensation pools, and also some of the compliance risks. And then also be able to assist all of you lifeguards out there, otherwise known as the lawyers and compliance officers, regarding how to manage these risks. When I was a kid in our community swimming pool that we had, it was an L-shaped swimming pool. And so for the most part, the large portion was for laps and also just general swimming. And then it turned to the left uh, for the L, and that was the diving board area. And I believe that it was down to 20, 25 feet was how deep that that water went. And in order to swim in the general area, you had to swim one lamp, lap of the general uh, lap pool. But if you wanted to dive and go into that 20, 25 foot area, because there is greater risk, you had to swim three laps of the swimming pool. And in order to show that you were more proficient and therefore because of the higher risk involved in swimming in the deep end, that you had to show your proficiency before you could actually go off of the, the diving boards. And back in the day, we actually had the low diving board and the high diving board. And in most uh, community pools uh, today, they don't have both uh, the, the high diving board. They only have the lower diving boards. But it was interesting also with respect to the placement of the lifeguards that the lifeguards in the deep end, there were more of the lifeguards patrolling the deep end than in the shallower end, and obviously it's because of the increased risks. And so for the general, uh, when I'm trying to equate uh, compensation pools to the Stark Law, 
The general areas uh, would be for compensation pools that could comply with the employment exception, the personal services arrangement exception, or the fair market value exception. And I will discuss all of that generally on the how the compensation pools apply to each of those exceptions. But once we get into the very deep end, the diving area, I'll go into a little bit more depth with respect to the complexities that apply to the in-office ancillary services exception after meeting the group practice definition. Now, recently, I returned from vacation, and we took our grandkids to the Great Wolf Lodge. And for those of you who have actually went to the Great Wolf Lodge, there's a lot of really fun uh, water slides inside the park, and my grandson ran me ragged. And uh, But one of the things I noticed about the lifeguards is how well-trained the lifeguards were. Not only did they pace all the same, but they also had these elongated life preservers that they were holding under their arms, and they purposefully went and checked the edges of the pool. And so I think that that's a lot uh, can be equated to compliance officers and lawyers who are dealing with the Stark Law, that we are the lifeguards. And we need to make sure that when compensation pools are being developed, that there's sufficient training regarding the compensation pools, as well as we are monitoring when the pool participants are swimming in the pool. Uh, We are monitoring to make sure that everyone swims in the pool safely. And not all compensation pools are created the same. And so some of the general, they're kind of like four general areas, and I'll just generally discuss those and then go into greater detail. Uh, First off, you have to be concerned about the identification of the pool or the creation of the pool. You want to make sure that your pool participants don't swim in a bad pool. Uh, So as the lifeguard, we need to make sure that as these compensation pools are being created, that we are identifying and creating these compensation pools consistent with the legal requirements. Number two, we as lifeguards have to monitor what goes into the pool. I know when I was a kid, we uh, probably uh, once every other hour, one of the lifeguards would go and test the water to make sure the chemicals were good. And so you want to make sure that the appropriate water is going into the pool and the appropriate chemicals. And in this context, it would be the sources of compensation that are going into the pool. Uh, Is it WRVU-based? Is it hourly-based? Is it compensation per visit? Is the compensation pool going to have designated health services in the pool? Usually I would advise against it, uh, but there there are some exceptions to that. Number three is we have to identify who can swim in the pool. And like I said, with my community pool, uh, there had to be some proficiency testing in order to ensure that you were capable of swimming in the pool. So here we need to decide who will be the pool participants. Will it be only physicians or are we going to also have non-physician practitioners? Is it going to be physicians of a singular specialty or multi-specialties, etc.? And lastly, uh, before we get to the deep end swimming, otherwise the in-office ancillary services exception, is we as the lifeguards need to monitor vigilantly the pool. We need to make sure that we understand all of the sources of of the money that is populating the pool 
And then we, as the lifeguards over the pool, need to make sure that the pool is divided, consistent not only with the contractual terms, but also with the regulatory restrictions that do apply under the Stark Law and also the anti-kickback statute. So as I begin to deep dive into this analysis, I do want to just point out that not all pools are created equal. I have seen some very large swimming pools, so somewhere compensation is all in. So all components of compensation go into the pool. I've also seen some very small uh, swimming pools, and that could be, by way of example, a compensation pool that is only comprised of on-call compensation amongst a group of pool participants. Then I've also seen specialized pools. So sometimes when you get into those Olympic training centers, you'll see that they have lap pools specifically for the the, the swimmers who are in training. And a lot of times it could even be training based upon a particular stroke. And by way of example for the Stark Law, that could be a specialized pool focused only on quality or possibly value-based compensation arrangements. So the first thing we need to determine with respect to a pool is why is the pool being formed? So what is the motivation? And preferably the motivation is to motivate or promote sharing within the pool participants. Um, Usually these compensation pools are developed because of collaboration. They want the physicians who are participating in the pool to collaborate with each other and not identify or try to target certain patients based upon acuity, payer source, their age, because a lot of times uh, physicians may want to tend to see younger patients because they have less comorbidities versus the older patients, or also the time when services are performed. You want to have collaboration. So if you have a hospitalist group, by way of example, you want to promote a collaboration within the group to allow some of the hospitalists to provide services during the day and other hospitalists to be nocturnists. And if all the compensation is going into the pool, uh, then even by way of example of the nocturnist is performing fewer WRVUs versus the hospitalist that works during the daytime. But if that nocturnist is an equal participant with the other hospitalist pool participants, then that nocturnist could be paid equivalent with the other hospitalists participating in the pool uh, because of the, the existence of the pool and then arguably the division of the compensation pool. So next, after we have looked at the motive, then we need to carefully analyze the type of compensation that is going into the pool. And so usually the pools are developed based upon units of compensation performed by the pool participants. This could either be based upon work RVUs, an hourly rate, a compensation per visit or per encounter and also other compensation that is derived from the performance or achievement of quality or value-based initiatives. And the key here is to analyze the unit of compensation that's going into the pool and determine whether or not that unit of compensation is representative of fair market value. So as I have talked on Stark Integrity before, especially when you're looking at the conversion factor, the compensation per WRVU, you'll want to make sure that it is appropriately benchmarked and you can take in some 
service area or market-based issues as we're determining the compensation per WRVU. But as a general rule of thumb, like to see the compensation per WRVU around the 50th percentile or somewhere below the 60th percentile. And then you have to evaluate whether or not that unit of compensation is representative of fair market value. And so that way we're comfortable with all of the units of compensation going into the pool. Again, just like the chemicals that are going into the pool, you want to make sure that the you have the appropriate chemicals and God forbid you don't want to have designated health service entity revenue going into the pool because that could be like algae to a swimming pool. If all the pool participants are not personally performing designated health services. So again, you have to be very careful about the sources of compensation. And just by way of example, and I've, I've used this example before, uh, the Halifax case down in Daytona Beach, one of the issues that was in question was the formation of a compensation pool that was 15% of the margin that was realized in the medical oncology service line. And so in that case, the issue was whether or not that compensation was related to designated health services. And because the margin generated from the medical oncology service line was through the hospital services, so this is the facility fee, the allegation was that the creation of that pool, like algae, was not appropriate because those physicians did not personally perform the services represented by the facility fee. So usually when you're going to create a compensation pool, it should be targeted to physicians personally perform services. However, there are some specialties, and that's the reason why sometimes when you paint with a broad brush, it's challenging, but there are some specialties that do personally perform uh, DHS, like radiology, even though radiologists don't refer. Uh, but uh, in, in that context, there could be other specialties like cardiology that actually perform some radiologic services. And if you are a pool participant, you want to make sure that only pool participants divide DHS if DHS revenue is going into the pool. But typically, outside of the group practice definition, I would encourage my clients not to put in DHS revenue into a compensation pool. Now, note in the Halifax case, it was the creation of the pool because the division of the pool was based upon work RVUs. Uh, so the medical oncologist, uh, if a medical oncologist performed 20% of the overall work RVUs of the group, the that medical oncologist would receive 20% of the pool. So it was more about the creation of the pool, what goes into the pool, versus the division of the pool. Next, you have to identify who can swim in the pool. Uh, so here it's preferred. So some of the preferred participants of a pool would be like all physicians of the same specialty or subspecialty. Uh, usually you would have a minimum threshold if there's going to be an equal division of the pool. So by way of example, if you have a certain level of work RVUs, like every pool participant has to meet the threshold of the 75th percentile in productivity, or if we're going to base this upon hours, 
every single physician has to be a 1.0 FTE equating to X number of hours or to be a pool participant. Another factor could be that you have to uh, work at least one third of the time providing call services. So there's various ways that you can establish a threshold in order to determine a pool participant. There also could be seniority levels that you can only participate in a pool if you are a physician who has two years or more experience. Some of the areas where you may want to be cautious regarding pool participation or continuing with the swimming pool analogy where more swim lessons may be desired is uh, like if you have different subspecialties that you desire to have in the pool. You need to test those various subspecialties to determine whether or not there's sufficient similarity with respect to the services in order to justify all of those participants to participate in the pool. And also, uh, you want to kind of test the pool if there is great variation between productivity. So, like I said, it's best to establish thresholds, but if you have somebody who's participating at the 20th percentile in WRVU productivity, but everyone else is above the 75th percentile, then that participant may not be ripe for pool participation. And also, you'll need to possibly test the pool if you want to have non-physician practitioners participate with the physicians in the pool. They can. And I want to emphasize you can create a compensation pool whereby physicians and non-physician practitioners participate in the pool equally, uh, but you'll need to understand the amount of compensation that's being paid because that could allegedly be above fair market value for a non-physician practitioner especially if the pool is divided equally. Now, with uh, APPs, we don't have to be that concerned under the Stark Law unless there's a family member involved, but definitely we have to be concerned under the anti-kickback statute if the compensation for the APP is above fair market value. And lastly, you have to be concerned about how you divide the compensation pool. And a lot of, of the division analysis will have to apply you know, based upon the creation of the pool or how large the pool is. I mean, typically, I see that compensation pools are divided equally amongst the pool participants, but you could uh, divide the pool depending upon the compensation in the pool based upon the hours worked. By way of example, if you have a call coverage compensation pool, and this is all based upon revenue that's being generated by the physicians while they're on call, uh, then you could divide that revenue based upon hours that a, a physician is on call. So if a physician is on call 40% when compared with all of the other pool participants, then that physician could receive 40% of that pool, even if the physician did not generate 40% of that income. And then also, uh, like if it's a quality pool, you can Divided based upon work RVUs. Uh, but if you're going to establish a threshold, and I've said threshold many times during this episode, you want to make sure that only the pool participants receive compensation if they have met that threshold. And I still want to emphasize that the compensation that is being paid to each of the pool participants must still be representative of fair market value. So even though that you're using a compensation pool as a compensation methodology, there is still 
fair market value that would have to apply to the resulting compensation that's being paid to each of the pool participants. And obviously, you can listen to other episodes of Stark Integrity for uh, fair market value analysis issues. So now what I've already said applies to the group practice definition and usually and generally under the in-office ancillary services exception. However, there are some special rules that likewise apply uh, for group practices. And so that's the reason why I go back to my analysis. These are the swimmers with greater proficiency, and we as lifeguards need to monitor these swimmers who are swimming in this group practice pool, otherwise known as the deep end. And usually under the group practice definition, uh, you can share overall profits that are coming from designated health services if you put them into a pool as long as the participants in the pool that there are at least five physicians. Now, what's a recent change, and you can go back to the group practice in the in-office ancillary services exception episodes in Stark Integrity and go into a deeper dive, but CMS has changed this rule whereby under the group practice definition, you can divide the DHS pool on a per capita basis, so equally amongst all the participants in the pool, or if the revenue is from DHS constitutes less than 5% of the group practice's total revenue, and 5% or less than each individual's physician compensation, then that also will meet the division of the pool. And lastly, there, as I've discussed in the group practice episode, you can distribute the DHS pool you know, based upon services that are not DHS. So using how you distribute DHS uh, revenue in a pool consistent with your non-DHS revenue. And there are proxy ways that you can do that by way of example, by work our views, hours, et cetera. But I encourage you to listen to that episode uh, regarding additional ways to divide. Uh, so that's the what I would call the uh, compensation pool deep end. And like I said in that episode, there are surrogate methods that you could apply to divide that DHS profit, like WRVUs, num number of evaluation and management encounters, uh, the size of a patient panel, or the number of procedures that a physician performs in comparison with the other pool participants. So it has now come time in the compensation pool episode for Stark Integrity to provide the three Captain Integrity punch points. Captain Integrity punch point number one is the funding of pooled compensation must come from defensible sources and should not include designated health services revenue unless all of the pool participants personally perform designated health services that are equivalent with the other pool participants. Captain Integrity punch point number two is you can use pooled compensation to promote sharing and collaboration not to reward for referrals. So thresholds are important, and therefore you don't, do not want to have pool participants who are not equivalent pool participants based upon the revenue that is going into the compensation pool. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is the attorney and compliance officer lifeguards. 
uh, should monitor and audit the division of the pool. And part of our job with respect to creation and the operation of compensation pools is to monitor you know, how the pool is created, meaning what type of revenue is going in, and also ensuring that the pool participants are equivalent in nature, uh, and also that the division of the compensation pool uh, is performed consistent with how it was intended to be performed and also in compliance with the Stark Law regulations as well as the anti-kickback statute. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.